Hey guys, my name is Dr. Penny Stack and I'm here with April Tate. We are so glad you've joined us today as we dive into all things educate to advocate for you, your family, children, and community. Real talk for real life to support your journey. So how did we get here? Over 30 years as an occupational therapist, growing up with undiagnosed dyslexia, raising a child with dyslexia, I founded Dyslexia Center of Tulsa. And after working with hundreds of children, I realized I just didn't want another child to grow up with the same struggles that I had experienced or parents reaching out for help without any resources to be found. Walking this path with my children opened my eyes to the loneliness that can come with this journey. I realized no one should do this alone. I founded Drops of Hope Consulting to walk with families through evaluations, therapies, 504s, IEPs, the joys, the struggles, and everything in between. We met, and And it it was was a perfect perfect fit. (laughs) Chatting over a cup of coffee and way too much chocolate, Educate to Advocate was born. Understanding the tears and celebrating the wins from our hearts to your home. So welcome to Educate to Advocate podcast. I'm Dr. Penny Stack here with April Tate. Well, I'm super excited about today's guest. Always, always. I don't know. You know, we say that every single time, don't we? We do. But to be honest with you, I think we have the best guests. We We do. We are so lucky to have these awesome people come on and talk to us every week. And Suzanne is no different. (laughs) No, absolutely not. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you my friend and colleague, Suzanne Broyles. She is a licensed professional counselor and a registered play therapist. She's also the past president of the Oklahoma Association for Play Therapy. She offices right here in Tulsa off of Brookside. So welcome, Suzanne. We're excited to have you here today. Hi. So Suzanne, play therapy. Now, I think as parents, we all play with our kids, right? And I know occupational therapy, we use play as part of therapy. But what you do is has a different intention Can you share with us a little bit about what play therapy is? Sure. Even Sigmund Freud said play is the work of children. It's what they do. It's how they learn. It's how they solve their problems. It's a way for a therapist to be able to do interventions without sitting across, you know, from a desk and saying, hey, how are you today? We sit in the floor (laughs) and we play and we can do interventions that are vicarious, that aren't directed right at the kid. And don't have to make them feel cornered or spotted. I had a kid who was ramming a truck into the baseboards of the floor. So I picked up the truck and I said, that's not okay. Time out. So the kid didn't get in trouble. The truck got in trouble. So the kid said, well, we get the truck back. And I'm like, well, when he's done with his time out, duh. That's what we do. (laughs) So, you know, he said, well, what am I going to do in the meantime? I said, I don't know. Let's find something else. And when he's done, I'll bring him back down for you. So then... He had to adapt and then do something different while still wanting that. And when he got it back, I said, of course, being me, make sure you tell him what not to do. And the child said, don't cram into the walls anymore. And then it was over. And we moved right past. So play therapy. That is really cool. Do you sometimes think that play therapy helps children communicate what they may not have the vocabulary to share and put put into expression? All the time. All the time. I look for themes in play therapy. If uh, bad guys keep winning or good guys and bad guys switch roles, that's all clues to me as to what's going on. I listen to the dreams. I I figure out whether or not they're eating, sleeping, good. I mean, all this stuff makes a difference. So you got to have to do like a global approach. But watching the play 
is a huge tip off whether things are going in a positive or a negative direction. So you work with uh, children that are 18 months to 18 years old, children with special populations, for example, autism spectrum, anxiety, trauma, behavior problems. And I think, April, you had a question. Well, I was just going to say, I really like what you're saying because, you know, my family, we do a lot of occupational therapy and I spend a lot of time with our occupational therapist and doing some of those things that they that they teach me to implement with our kids. And my husband will sometimes, because he doesn't go to all of those therapy meetings, he's not always there around it. And so he, to him, it's, well, you're, you're just playing. What, what is really going on? So I love how you explain like, you know, how all of these little things work together and you get all of this information from these kids without having to, to ask them a question that they may not have the vocabulary or may not be comfortable answering. I think it's really cool. I, what comes to mind is a safe space. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I think yes. about. Well, because there are ways of, of making filial responses. And that's what I teach parents to do is, is to step back, take your parenting hat off for a minute or two. And just comment on what you see. Wow, that guy's really mad in play. Or, ooh, I can't seem to do anything to make that better. And they will tell you why. Interesting. Take off the parenting hat. That is not easy to do. (laughs) It's not easy to do. It's not easy for me to do. I sometimes have to sit on my hands to keep myself from doing something for them when I'm trying to teach them how to do for themselves. (laughs) Do you find that working with the child, you're also working with the family? All the time. Yes. I'm a play therapist. I want to work with parents. I want them to be play therapists. I want the teachers to be play therapists. I want everybody in the world to be able to interact differently with children and help them accept responsibility for what they need to, but also help them feel safe and listened to and valued. So I often wonder how a child, how it comes to the point where a child needs to be seen by a counselor or with you play therapy, how, how do they get to that point? Right. And one of the indicators, it would be trauma and trauma is, you know, people interpret trauma quite differently. And April, April and I were visiting earlier and April, you were sharing um, an example of trauma. Okay. Yeah. So we were, we were talking about trauma before we started and my oldest was born very ill. He was on a ventilator for a while. He had, you know, multiple chest tubes. He had, you know, very little chance of actually surviving, which he did. He's thriving. He's amazing. But I wonder so much of how much has body remembers that traumatic experience because, you know, you read about trauma now and we're learning that trauma lives in the body. It's not necessarily something that you interpret in your mind. It's something that is actually physical. Biological. Biological, exactly. And so I, I just wonder, and I think about all of the parents who have been in our position in the past where they've had, you know, birth trauma, how does that stay with our kids and how, how do our kids deal with that throughout life? And without knowing that that's something that's there, how do we parent and and be sensitive to that trauma? So we have all this trauma, other areas of trauma that are always really interesting, children who have been adopted and separation from the birth parent. Often when I work with families, we ask them several questions before they come to see us. I think every medical provider or provider typically does something like that. One of the questions we have on our brochure is, has your child experienced any trauma? physical or psychological. And the majority of our parents will will check off no. But then as I go on to read, I may see that they've been retained. Maybe they were bullied. Maybe they were a twin and they were born premature, just kind of like what you're talking about. So I'd love to hear from you, Suzanne. You're the expert. You see all of these children and 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 families. And I'd love to hear from you 
kind of like a definition, I guess, for trauma as a good start. And then how does trauma manifest? How, how do you see it? Well, trauma is an injury physically, mentally, and it's something that stays with us for a while. And sometimes we have to figure out how to compartmentalize that, where to find a box to put it in so that it doesn't have to be out all the time on display. And it is often misunderstood because people have been trained and taught to not talk about their stuff. Don't talk about your problems. Don't cry in front of everybody. Don't show it to anybody. Be a brave little soldier. And people, that's not who we are. We need to feel and express and be heard and listened to and valued and accepted. And that's just all part of life. And when we don't get that, that doesn't help us recover. I mean, we're taught very early that you can't get over an ongoing trauma. So if it's still happening, if it's a disability, for example, if you're learning disabled and you're in class and the rest of the class always gets finished before you and they're always on their computers playing games afterwards because that's okay or reading a nice book. And you're still trying to get through the instructions. You're not going to feel spectacular about yourself. That's re-traumatizing pretty much every day. You know, that is interesting that you say that, re-traumatizing every day. I think about what I've experienced as a parent and many parents have told me, and this is so prevalent, where the child is great at school. The teacher, they don't act up. They're not on the teacher's radar and they come home they're crying, they crawl into bed, they're under the bed, uh, they're fighting with their siblings or, or their parents. And the two worlds, parent and school, do are not seeing the same child. And I just think about the children that are just holding it all together as best as they can. And then they go to the safe place of home and that's where they just, you know, fall apart. Yes. And that happens all the time. God, even lately with all the parents trying to do school from home with all the Zooms, that's insane too, because then the kids are like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. What do you, I, I have a shtick that I do with my teacher and now I'm supposed to try to do it with you. Or, I mean, like it's hard for the kids to navigate. It's hard for the parents to navigate. It's hard for the teachers to navigate. So the whole thing, you know, just when we get back to normal, even it's still not going to be normal for these kids. So being able to catch what's going on with them and uh, show them some hope. Let them know, yeah, I got this. We've got some tests we could do. We've got steps to take to make this easier and better for you, for them to know that we're interested in that. And that's what we want to do. And that's what we're here for. And that we're safe is really important. So catching it, that that brings me to kind of my next question is, how does trauma manifest? What What do you see? Because we've seen children who, like I said, are never on the radar. They're They're people pleasers. And then we have children who are on the other extreme, throwing chairs in the classroom, punching other children. So they're, and both children could be experiencing significant trauma. So, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but what are some things that would indicate to a parent or teacher, hmm, there may be some trauma going on here and we may may need to just dive into it a little deeper. Well, and the squeaky wheel also may get their way. They may disrupt the process so much that they don't have to do the math that day or they don't have to do the reading that day. And that's their intent a lot of the times, whether it's conscious or un, that I'm just so uncomfortable and I don't want to do this. You may see kids hide. You may see kids run. You may see them escape. You may see them act out, get loud, pick on somebody, throw stuff, talk over the teacher. There's all kinds of things that they'll do. And then there are the quiet ones who we always say are probably um, more in need because they hide everything so well. Fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. It's fine. 
I got my one of my colleagues a coffee mug that had a picture of a little girl that just had that quote. It's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Because she had a little <laughs> girl she was working yeah. with that was just like that. And so, yeah, it could be a, a broad spectrum of what you're seeing and to know whether or not it's a kid just trying to avoid it because they don't like it or because they don't know how to do it is something that we need to sort out. Suzanne, I have a question. Um with regard to the manifestation, is there a link between like extreme anxiety within a kid and and trauma? Is that one of the ways that that can manifest? There can be. Yes. Yes. And the difference between what I call dysregulation, um, which is where kids just melt down. So I want to call dysregulation like a lack of control. I am melting. I, I am not in charge of how this is going to roll out. Whereas that's the symptoms that you see with that may be very, very close to the symptoms that you see with defiant, which is what I like to define as uber control. Not only can I control myself, I'm going to control you to mm. get what I want. So being able to sort those out is important because we treat dysregulation a lot different than we treat defiant. You had mentioned something, I think when we were talking earlier, that the disability in and of itself can be the trauma. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit too? Sure. Yeah. Like if I'm at school and I don't understand how to get this, or I'm not processing this the same way everybody else is processing it. And I'm subjected to doing that every single day and nobody's getting that. I'm not just lazy. I just don't get it. No matter you can explain it to me like this or like that, I'm still not getting it. Then I'm not getting what I need. I'm going to feel stupid. I'm going to shut down. And then I'm going to have to go through this every day and get re-traumatized. And that's when you get your little friends that hide in the bathroom during certain subjects or get sick every time math comes up. Yeah. Yes. So, and that's one of the things I look for. I look for the somatic symptoms. I look for the time of day. I look for whether or not it's morning, noon or not. Did we have blood sugar issues? You know, when's the last time we ate? (laughs) All these things make, make a difference. Does, if it's a kid that doesn't eat breakfast, well, hello. We're going to have an issue with that because we haven't had fuel since dinner the night before. And we're trying to get through a school day with math and reading first thing in the morning. Ah, that's Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of have to look at everything. I'm just sitting here processing. I know. Like, my head is spinning <laughs> and I just, I'm, I don't even know what direction to go in sometimes. But, you know, I think about the parent that may have limited resources or the parent that's had so many resources that they're both unsure of what to do, right? They've either got too much information and they're just trying one thing and then trying another or the parent that doesn't have resources and they, they're exhausted, right? Or, or both. Or, or exhausted. Both, <laughs> right. They're both exhausted. What are some golden nuggets, if you will, little takeaways or gems that you think a parent could, could do that would be helpful for a child? I think one of the things you had mentioned earlier was changing their responses to children. Absolutely. When we start changing our responses and being less judgmental, catch them being good. Rewarding them for that, of course, is is an obvious one. Really listening to the feelings behind what's going on. So if we see, there's always a feeling before anger, right? There's always some self-thought about I'm not good enough or they don't like me or, and then we get angry about it. And then we show it to the world. Kids are the same. They do the same thing. They're not, they're not different there. Um, They may not do it consciously, but most adults don't either. But to be able to uh, be heard and understood is what everybody's looking for. If the child is trying to express something and the parents are always just judging how they're doing it, then they're not really hearing what the kid's trying to say or tuning into how the kid feels about it. So if you've got a kid that's acting out, 
you might say, what happened to you today? Did someone upset you today? What happened that did not go your way? Mm, I like that question. And start getting to uh, what's really behind it so we can address that. Because if we're just going, sit down, you know you're not supposed to be running. How is that really addressing why the kid's running in the first place? You know, if we're having an ADD moment and we didn't take our meds that day, okay, well, that's one way to solve the problem, send them to the nurse's office. But if we're doing it because of anxiety, because I heard my parents fight last night, uh, that's another thing. Or if it's because um, I really don't know how to do this math, then we've got a whole nother thing. So just addressing the behavior doesn't get to the root of the behavior. I, I have a question. So this is all very interesting to me and my wheels are turning. I think about my kids. I think about my clients. Who would best benefit from play therapy? Well, I want to say everybody. Everyone. Everyone. I knew she was going to say that. <laughs> I'm thinking my, that's the word that was going through my head was everyone. I mean, I kind of want to be a play therapist when I grow up now. <laughs> exactly. Now I know why you're saying, though, that you want every parent to be a play therapist. This makes so much sense because they come to you for maybe an hour or two, maybe three a week or whatever, but they're home with parents in school 24-7. So what happens all the other time? The follow-through and the consistency with, with what you're suggesting. Right. And I give homework. So I always tell my parents what to expect, what we're working on. If a kid freaks out every time a parent says no, the homework might be to say no to everything. And then if there's no fit, you can change your mind. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. That's funny. Well, gosh, I mean, this is so much information. I feel like my my brain is just spinning trying to get to grab a hold of all of it. Well, I think it's just important to sort of remember that kids have feelings too. And if there's something that they're not good at or they feel like they're not on a par with everybody else, it's going to affect them on a very deep level. There's an old African proverb that says, if a child doesn't feel accepted by the village, they'll burn it down just to feel it's warm. Mm. That's pretty profound. It is. So we have this balance, right? Because I, I hear my parents in my head when, I, when I'm about to ask you this question. And my parents were very old school. They grew up in the depression. What goes on in the four walls stays in these four walls. You don't talk about your feelings. Buck up. I was just right? about to talk just, about this. Just do it. You know, you want something to cry about. I'll give you something to cry about. You know, all those. Ooh, I knew that one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you have these old school thoughts. Then there's the other end of the pendulum where the kids are being raised as the parents' best friends. Right. Yes. So you have you have this big continuum. So where is the balance? And I've seen you do this in real life. And so. And it's one of the neatest things I like about what you do when you work with children, the balance between really making the kid keep it real. What is it that they need to just own and take responsibility of? And how do you facilitate that versus, you know what, we need to learn some coping strategies. Well, I, I tell all my parents that we want to start out with this big, ooey, gooey pile of love. <laughs> and then on this ooey, gooey pile of love and acceptance, we want to build a structure. We want to, the kids love structure and they thrive in structure and they are, if given too much power, they are malevolent little ruler. They are taught, they are wired to be that way, right? They, uh, you know, Freud says, gimme, 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 gimme is it, you know, it's, it's seek pleasure, avoid pain. Uh, that's the way kids are wired. They're, they scream to tell us, change, change my diaper, feed me. I need this. I need that. So they don't start switching that around for a while. So if we give them too much too soon, they don't know what to do with it. They have no place to put it and no frame of reference for it. So, 
Yeah, and it's never a good idea for a parent to try to be a best friend or to try to be too authoritarian. Sit down and shut up. Children should be seen and not heard. Well, how'd that help? You know, that's not going to help us express ourselves or become who we have the potential to become. Yes, making that balance, letting kids have power over what they can have power over. I mean, you can pick out three outfits and say, which one do you want to wear, sweetie? And they feel like the queen of the May because they got to choose. You know, but if you say, well, what restaurant can the family eat at tonight? Well, I don't know anything y'all hate because I'm mad at you right now. We don't give them too much at once. You know what I'm saying? They can't rule the roost or the roost isn't going to be a very happy place. Right. Do you have any last questions? I didn't, but I, I mean, I took so much away from this talk and the things that really, really stood out to me were, were that, you know, just the idea that trauma is relative. We experience it differently. So just because an event might be traumatic to me, it might not be traumatic to Penny here or to Suzanne. And just to keep that in mind as we're watching our kids and watching our kids struggle uh, and the idea that you can be re-traumatized daily as you know, when you're dealing with your disability, just constantly feeling just not up to par, not good enough, not um, feeling that success that we should feel when we're, when we're young and learning. And that I really love the discussion that play has meaning. I think it's so hard to see because we're not trained that way. As a parent, you get down on the floor and you play blocks and, oh, we knock the blocks down. That's really fun and great. But when a kid is angrily knocking the blocks down, he's not just being you know, a brat. He's telling you, I'm angry. And to just take a deep breath and watch for those signs so that you have some indications of what may be going on. And then that there's just a clear difference between dysregulation and defiance. I find this a lot with my families that uh, that I work with, just the idea that my kid's so defiant, they're not following the rules, they're, you know, hiding in the bathroom during school, they're, you know, destroying things at home. And maybe that's not necessarily defiance, maybe that is dysregulation. And it's important to know the difference between the two and and to get them help. Some of my takeaways that I really appreciated, Suzanne, as you were speaking, was your acknowledgement and saying it out loud was that trauma is an injury. You know, a broken arm, we can see it. Trauma, you know, mental health awareness has really been increasing, especially this past year. There's just so many more resources out there and understanding that trauma in and of itself is is an injury, meaning it can be treated, right, through play therapy and through a lot of other opportunities. And that changing our response as a parent could really be one of those small golden nuggets that can make all the difference from getting through your evening peacefully or switching gears, transitioning from school to home in a really smooth way, as opposed to having it just ruin your whole evening. You know, I loved what you said about catching them being good. I remember doing that with my daughter. Uh, I used to thank her when she used manners. I'm like, thank you so much for using manners. You're such a good girl, you know, And, and, and that that as a parent made me feel empowered that I was being a good parent. Not that I needed the accolade, but just a breath like, okay, that was a win. Instead of me saying, instead of yelling or punishing everything that's going wrong and that's all she hears all day, you know, kind of rewarding her for good behavior. Yeah. I have something to say about this because this just sparked a little memory. My youngest is who, he's our wild child and he knows that he's wild and we've redefined wild in our house. Wild is not bad. It's wonderful. Um, But when he was younger, when he was two, he was insane. He would climb, he would fall, he would hurt himself. He's a sensory seeker. So he was just, 
I mean plainly wild. And there were a lot of no's throughout the day. And I kind of got bogged down in that stop. No, you're going to hurt yourself. And and so at night, whenever I would put him to bed, I mean, I, I think I'll remember this for the rest of my life. I got into this pattern where I would hold him after we read our stories and we were saying goodnight and I would just rock him back and forth and say, you were a good boy. You were a good, good boy. You were a good boy. And when I went to bed at night, I wasn't thinking about all of those no's and all of those stops and all of those moments where I was just on the brink of, come on now. But I thought about that time where I just held him and told him how good he is because I felt like he needed to know that. I did not want to create that identity in him. And that's what that story made me think about. Yeah. It, uh, you know, changing responses. Another example I can think of, I, I, there was somebody that worked with my daughter and I started looking at him as a parenting mentor, even though he wasn't her parent. And I noticed he always praised all the kids he worked with. Even if it was a child that was thoroughly misbehaving, he always pointed out the good. And I'm like, just watching him exhausted me. And I remember asking him, I said, how do you do that? Like, how do you find that within you when the child has worn, worn you down? to be that positive. And what he said was so profound, profound. It changed how I parented. And he said, I don't talk to the children for how they are now. I talk to them for who they will be. Oh, and I'm like, love that. Yes! Writing it down. I talk to them for who they will be. And that's what I take away from the total, from the change of responses there. I love that. Thank you so much, Suzanne. We really appreciate your time today. We learned so much and we thank you for joining us and making us a small part of your day. Thanks for having me. We are so glad that you were here today too, uh, Suzanne. I'm just, I'm just so in my head. I, I keep, I cannot stop thinking about all the topics that we discussed. I almost feel like I'm the audience, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and not the co-host. And so we'd love to hear from you. It, uh, any topics or questions, please feel free to email us at educate to advocate at gmail.com. You may see your comment on our next podcast. And find us, you can find our, our podcast on any podcast platform, including Apple, Spotify, our iHeartRadio, anyone that's out there, we're there. And look for us on YouTube, our new YouTube channel. 